Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Good morning. Good morning. I'm so thankful to be here uh, with you all again this morning. Pastor James, thank you for that introduction. Uh, Let's just pray, and we're going to get right into the Word this morning. Um, Lord, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for the precious gift of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for the transforming power of your Word. Would you This morning, remove the scales from our eyes. Would you open our ears so that we can see and hear what you have to say to each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever known somebody that's been delivered from some great crisis and thought, wow, if God ever did that for me, I would serve him forever. I've seen those videos of people who are like the lone survivor in a plane crash or the people who, uh, you know, have some freak accident with the nail gun and the nail misses the critical organ by just a millimeter. And I think, man, how could you not serve God after something like that, you know? But it, it turns out that uh, crisis and deliverance are great to change our behavior, but they're horrible motivators for lasting heart change. And that's really where we find the people of Israel in the book of Malachi, where we're going to spend our time today. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's a little four-chapter book right before you get to Matthew. And there was a time in the history of the people of Israel where they were in captivity, Right? Not in Egypt like they were in the time of Moses, but uh, now they're in Babylon in captivity. And, and prior to this time, the people of Israel were governed or ruled by a theocracy, which is just a fancy way to say that they were governed by God through prophets and priests. Well, after generations of unfaithfulness to God, Israel is ruled by and suffering under the hand of Babylon. But eventually Babylon fell, and the once captive Israelites were now allowed to go back to their home in Judah. Things were looking good for God's chosen people. They were free, the temple was being restored, everybody was waiting with great expectation for the Messiah to come back and set things right for the people of Israel once and for all. But By the time we get to the book of Malachi, we're about 100 years past that crisis and liberation. The Jews or the Israelites have been out of exile for quite some time, and they have found, as we usually do, that the stories about the suffering and the subsequent freedom of their ancestors was enough for a temporary change of behavior, but it didn't change their hearts. And by the time we get to Malachi, Israel has gone from devoted and excited to now trivializing God's law, to questioning God and complaining about him. There are six specific times that this happens in the book of Malachi, and six times that 
that uh, the Israelites questioned God right to his face. Three chapters in, we get to the fifth time that the Israelites did this in Malachi chapter 3, verses 6 through 10. You can turn there. I did bring my paper Bible in hopes that I'd be able to see it without my glasses. I'm not. I don't know if I can. <laughs> I'm going to read it. I can zoom in on my, on my iPad. For the Lord, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Verse 8, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby... Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. So God is calling his people to turn back to him, and their response is, how? How, God, how can we turn back to you? And God reminds them that they have stopped bringing a tithe or a tenth of their income to the temple. And we know from chapter one of Malachi that even the offerings that they were bringing were these lame, sick, blind animals. And so on top of their deplorable offerings, they were also neglecting their obligation to bring this temple tax into the temple. And now the temple was falling into ruin again. It was shameful. And in the context of ancient Israel, really proved that they didn't value or honor their God, that their hearts were not fully his. And I've read this book over and over and over again, and I read it as them and they and their relationship to an ancient God. And then God woke me up and said, no, this is a story about you and we and us and our relationship to a very present God. We're in a sermon series, as you may know, uh, called So, and spoiler alert, if you cannot discern from our text today, uh, we are talking about tithing and giving. Ushers, lock the doors. I'm just kidding. Don't lock the doors. Just stay close in case anybody tries to escape. We don't want anybody sneaking out. Uh, but Malachi chapter 3 is probably the most popular scripture when we talk about uh, tithing in church. The meaning of a tithe is just a tenth of a thing. It's just 10% of something. And for our friends in ancient Israel, the tithe would have been considered a temple tax. It was not what you and I would consider a free will offering, right? No more than your income taxes are a free will offering that you pay to the federal government. And so it was a tenth of every person's increase that was brought to the temple treasury. But they weren't, they weren't doing it. 
And God told Israel in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you. There was a breach not only in their obligation to bring this temple tax, but there was a breach in their relationship with God. God never changed. He said so right at the beginning of this scripture. He never changed in his steadfast love for Israel, but somehow, somewhere along the way, the people got off track. And part of the proof that the people's hearts no longer fully belonged to God was their unwillingness to bring their tithe and offering to the temple. God warned them that they were cursed, not because of what they did, but because of what they were neglecting to do. But we have questions about tithing, right? I totally do. Uh, because admittedly, the principle of tithing, is, it can be confusing. It can also be triggering for some people. Jesus did talk about tithing in Matthew, uh, the 23rd chapter. He told the Pharisees, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. You ought to have done those you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So Jesus wasn't denouncing tithing or saying, don't do it, but he was warning them that an overemphasis on one part of the law while neglecting another part of the law really was hypocrisy. But would we consider that statement that Jesus to be made, uh, that Jesus made uh, him to be saying that it, was, that it was a religious law for them? But even if it was, what does that mean for us? Because when Jesus died, he certainly didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled all of the requirements of the law. So are we off the hook now? So many questions, and I do not have the answers to all of your questions, but I'm going to give you my one short answer. There is not a New Testament, New Covenant, biblical law for a 10% temple tax. And before you let that disorient you or you let that relieve you, whatever the case may be, the truth is that there is also no New Testament biblical law for you to pray or for you to read your Bible or for you to go to church. And yet, here we all sit today. The truth of the matter is that there are lots of things that we do for which there is no law that we are governed by, but we do them because they are good and necessary for our spiritual formation. So while there may no longer be a religious law to pay a temple tax, there is no question that wild, self-sacrificing, spirit-led, obedient, free will generosity is good and necessary. It is important. It is good for you. So God says in Malachi 3 verse 10, he says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no need, no more need. The truth is that you and I, me especially, are plagued with a tendency to bend towards a crippling fear of scarcity. 
and really to be driven by greed. And whether we like to admit it or not, humans, we, are prone to listen to our flesh that demands that we hoard all that we have, even that we take what isn't really ours, because we never know when the well is going to dry up. At the core of our very nature, our sin nature, is a worry that there might not be enough. So the minute we start talking about any kind of giving, that flesh gets really agitated. Right? Mine does. Have you ever noticed that nobody comes to church and says, oh, can't believe they're preaching another sermon about prayer. We don't say that when we come to, but, but some of you, when you heard that presentation, when you found out what the, the sermon series was, you said, oh, here they go, talking about money again. It is what we do because we like our stuff and we don't want anybody telling us to do, telling us what to do with our stuff. And I'm not intending to be judgmental or condemning, but we can be selfish. And our self-preserving impulses pull us towards a life with a death grip on our money and on our stuff. And we create lifestyles that center around our needs and ourselves rather than a life that is centered in generosity, trusting that our faithful God will always provide We are driven by a fear that there is a limited supply of resources, so we had better hold on to ours closely. So this principle of tithing becomes a function of our generosity and certainly reveals something about our heart toward God and how we trust him. In construction, which I am... I don't know much about, but I do know this one thing. In construction, there's a tool that's called a plumb line. You can stick my picture up there. As a weight suspended from a string used, uh, and it's been used since ancient Egyptian times. They actually used it to like build the pyramids and stuff. Uh, But it's used as a reference point to make sure that a structure is vertically justified and centered. And our commitment to steward our finances in a way that prioritizes regular and consistent giving and regular and consistent generosity is like this, like this plumb line in our lives. Generosity reveals something to us about our orientation to money. It becomes the thing by which we measure what is really at our center. So tithing then just isn't a process that we, that we use or that we employ to get more stuff from God or to even avoid a curse, but rather it becomes the baseline by which we learn to start living a life of consistent and faithful generosity, a life characterized by open hands of giving and not stingy closed fists. Are you guided this morning by a fear of lack, or are you trusting God in obedient generosity? But the Lord doesn't just say, bring the tithe. Then he says, put me to the test. Fun fact, this is the only time in the Bible that God tells his people to test him. The Hebrew word for test is bachain. 
and Pastor, the, the great theologian, Pastor Bryson Brakey, down here on the front row, promised me that you guys would be really impressed if I said some Hebrew words. So I hope, I hope that you're impressed. But the word to test is, it literally means to examine or to prove. The word is used a lot in scripture, but usually it's God that's doing the testing of our heart, testing of our motives. But this time, God is inviting Israel to test him. Test him how? By bringing their tithes and offerings and seeing if he would not, in fact, be faithful. God isn't testing Israel's faithfulness by the stuff that they bring, but telling them that they can test him. Friends, I have good news and bad news for you. The good news is God doesn't actually need any of your stuff. Everything on the earth already belongs to him. The bad news is he's going to ask for your stuff anyway. Why? Because we don't trust God's faithfulness to provide as much as we trust our stuff. And this whole thing is about our willingness to accept an invitation to put aside, to lay something down that we think that we can't live without to test and see if God isn't actually better than that thing. In this verse in Malachi, God is asking for a tithe, but ultimately, he is asking you and I to freely give him all of ourselves. All that he asks for. There's a story in the Bible about a young ruler. Jesus was teaching in Judea, and a man came to him, and he said... Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus gives him a list of things. He says, okay, don't murder. Um, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Uh, honor your father and mother. Love your neighbor as yourself. The young man was like, awesome. Check, check, and check, Jesus. I do all those things. I've been doing them since, since I was a young child. What else, Jesus? And then in Matthew 19 and 21, Jesus says, okay, how about this? Sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Now, the scripture says when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He wouldn't part with his stuff. Y'all, it was never about the stuff. Jesus didn't need his stuff. It was about what was holding the stuff was proving about what was actually holding the heart of the young man. It was about what was in his heart. He followed the rules, but his love of stuff made it really hard to follow Jesus and to see his faithfulness. How about us? What are you holding today? Are you really convinced that Jesus' generous way is better than your stuff? The last thing that God says in this passage is that he is going to open the windows 
of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. Some translations say until there is no more room. Opening the windows of heaven is a figurative use of the same language that, that the Bible uses when uh, it talks about Noah and the ark and how the rain fell uh, during that time. God is telling them to bring the tithe into the storehouse or the temple treasury and they would experience a deluge, a torrential downpour of blessing on them. That's the kind of blessing I like. Open up the windows. God, I still feel like I have a little room to receive more. Open them up. I grew up uh, in the church era, in the charismatic church, uh, known as the Word of Faith movement or gospel. Less flatteringly, people call it the prosperity gospel. Um, and there were a lot of really wonderful things that I was taught about how to believe God by faith. And I am so thankful, so, so thankful for that. But one of the challenges uh, and one of the reasons that that church movement is so sharply criticized is because in error, it can equate Christian faith, blessing, and favor with material things and financial gain. And so uh, I had a tendency to measure how blessed I was by how much stuff I had. Proof that I was blessed meant bigger, better, bigger car, bigger house, more stuff, all of my things. So my motivation for giving or for tithing was to get blessed so I could get more stuff. Now, don't hear me wrong. There is nothing inherently wrong with wealth. Many of us in this room have seen the Lord provide in abundant ways in our lives. And really, if you think about it, compared to the rest of the world, everybody in here is rich. So there is nothing inherently wrong uh, with wealth or even believing God for that. And there is an element of prosperity implied when we're talking about blessing, but wealth alone is not an indication of God's favor, neither is poverty an indication of God's punishment. So how is God blessing? Well, first of all, there is nothing to suggest in this passage that the word you is God talking to individuals. Everything about the language suggests that God is talking to a collective you. One of the primary purposes of the temple tax was to support the Levites to help support the whole nation of Israel in fulfilling the call of God on their lives. As a matter of fact, God says in verse 9, it says, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Wait a minute. So nobody in the whole nation was bringing a tithe? Nobody. I don't, I think that's probably not what God was saying. I think what's more likely is that God was saying that everybody wins or everybody loses because we have something that we're doing together. 
You was not God calling out individuals for individual blessing or individual cursing. So pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need could be translated this way or could be restated this way. God will make sure that your whole community will have more than enough to accomplish his purposes. And as a part of this community, as a part of this local body, God has us on mission to reach the city and touch the world. And the result of our collective generosity is that he will meet our needs and we will accomplish his mission best when we bring our resources together as a community. Are you waiting for God to bless you individually or trusting him to bless our community to do what it is that God has called us to do? This whole scripture that we read beginning to end is about God's conversation with Israel and it began with God calling his people back into covenant relationship with him. But part of the evidence that their hearts were not really turned towards God was their orientation or their connection to their stuff. And we would love, because we love our stuff, we would love for our relationship with the Lord and for our generosity to be on parallel tracks and never, ever intersect. But that is just not reality. Because when we make Jesus Lord, we make him Lord of all. You make him Lord of your stuff. You make him Lord of your body. You make him Lord of your money. You make him Lord of your words, of your relationships. He is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. You know, I, uh, I'm an only child, and so I never really had to share with people. <laughs> so generosity is not a thing that comes easy for me all the time. <laughs> so I would love to use myself as an example and tell you how I have evolved into this great, generous person. I'm, I'm getting there. But uh, my father-in-law is here. He's not here at this service, but he came to Nashville to uh, spend his birthday with us. He turned 70 this past week, and um, he is without question one of the most generous people I've ever met in my life. Um, he lives his whole life with his palms up, not in a posture to receive, but to give. He is content. He fully trusts Jesus. He is satisfied with his portion. He doesn't covet other people's stuff. He is full of joy. He lives like nothing he has is actually his, but it belongs to the Lord. His eyes are not on his stuff, but on the one who provided. And I wish I had the time to tell you about all of the ways that Really, it's impacted his own life. But he is a beautiful example of what, it, what generosity looks like. 
He is thankful for who Jesus is in his life, and he lives his whole life unselfishly and open-handed. Friends, we don't give so that we'll be blessed. When we know, like my father-in-law knows, that we are already blessed, giving is second nature. We have been made in the image of a generous father, and when we imitate him, we don't have a choice but to open our hearts and open our hands and be generous too. And as we close, I want to read one last scripture for you. Second Corinthians 9 and 7 says, each of you, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver because he is a cheerful giver. And we look so much like Jesus when we learn how to live our lives with an open hand. And if I can encourage you today with one thing, it would be that your whole life imitates the Father that loves you so deeply. That God so loved the world that he gave. He, saw, he already set the example for us. And I want to pray for you today. God, we thank you so much for your word. We give you our hearts today. God, would you mold them and shape them until we honor you with our very best. Would you help us to be more like you, our benevolent king? Help us day by day to be made more into your likeness and more into your character. Help us, Jesus, please, to be people of faithful generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.